0: Chapter one b of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter one b Early School Days. Lincoln's First Dollar. Presentiments of Future Greatness. Down the Mississippi. Removal to Illinois. Lincoln's Father. The child had enjoyed a little irregular schooling while living in Kentucky, getting what instruction was possible of one Zachariah Burney, a Catholic, who taught for a time close by his father's house. He also attended, as convenience permitted, a school kept by Caleb Hazel, nearly four miles away, walking the distance back and forth with his sister. Soon after coming under the care of his stepmother, the lad was afforded some similar opportunities for learning. His first master in Indiana was Azel Dorsey. The sort of education dispensed by him, and the circumstances under which it was given, are described by Mr. Ward H. Lammon, at one time Lincoln's law partner at Springfield, Illinois. Azel Dorsey presided in a small house near the little Pigeon Creek meeting-house, a mile and a half from the Lincoln cabin. It was built of unhewn logs, and had holes for windows in which greased paper served for glass. The roof was just high enough for a man to stand erect. Here the boy was taught reading, writing, and ciphering. They spelt in classes, and trapped up and down. These juvenile contests were very exciting to the participants, and it is said by the survivors that Abe was even then the equal, if not the superior, of any scholar in his class the next teacher was andrew crawford mrs gentry says he began teaching in the neighborhood in the winter of eighteen twenty two to three crawford kept school in the same little schoolhouse which had been the scene of dorsey's labors and the windows were still adorned with the greased leaves of old copy books that had come down from dorsey's time abe was now in his fifteenth year and began to exhibit symptoms of gallantry toward the other sex he was growing at a tremendous rate and two years later attained his full height of six feet and four inches. He wore low shoes, buckskin breeches, linsey woolsey shirt, and a cap made of the skin of a possum or a coon. The breeches clung close to his thighs and legs, and failed by a large space to meet the tops of his shoes. He would always come to school thus, good-humoredly and laughing. He was always in good health, never sick, had an excellent constitution, and took care of it. Crawford taught manners, a feature of backwoods education to which Dorsey had not aspired. Crawford had doubtless introduced it as a refinement which would put to shame the humble efforts of his predecessor. One of the scholars was required to retire, and then to re-enter the room as a polite gentleman is supposed to enter a drawing-room. He was received at the door by another scholar, and conducted from bench to bench until he had been introduced to all the young ladies and gentlemen in the room. Lincoln went through the ordeal countless times. If he took a serious view of the performance it must have put him to exquisite torture, for he was conscious that he was not a perfect type of manly beauty. If, however, it struck him as at all funny it must have filled him with unspeakable mirth to be thus gravely led about, angular and gawky, under the eyes of the precise Crawford, to be introduced to the boys and girls of his acquaintance. While in Crawford's school, the lad wrote his first compositions. The exercise was not required by the teacher, but, as Nat Grigsby has said, he took it up on his own account. At first he wrote only short sentences against cruelty to animals, but at last came forward with a regular composition on the subject. He was annoyed and pained by the conduct of the boys, who were in the habit of catching terrapins and putting coals of fire on their backs. He would chide us, says Grigsby, tell us it was wrong, and would write against it. One who has had the privilege of looking over some of the boyish possessions of Lincoln, says, Among the most touching relics which I saw was an old copy-book, in which, at the age of fourteen, Lincoln had taught himself to write and cipher. Scratched in his boyish hand, on the first page, were these lines. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen. He will be good but God knows when. The boy's thirst for learning was not to be satisfied with the meager knowledge furnished in the miserable schools he was able to attend at long intervals. His stepmother says, He read diligently. He read everything he could lay his hands on. And when he came across a passage that struck him, he would write it down on boards if he had no paper, and keep it until he had got paper. Then he would copy it, look at it, commit it to memory and repeat it he kept a scrap-book into which he copied everything which particularly pleased him mr arnold further states there were no libraries and but few books in the back settlements in which lincoln lived if by chance he heard of a book that he had not read he would walk miles to borrow it among other volumes borrowed from crawford was weems's life of washington he read it with great earnestness He took it to bed with him in the loft and read till his nubbin of candle burned out. Then he placed the book between the logs of the cabin that it might be near as soon as it was light enough in the morning to read. In the night a heavy rain came up, and he awoke to find his book wet through and through. Drying it as well as he could, he went to Crawford and told him of the mishap. As he had no money to pay for the injured book, he offered to work out the value of it. Crawford fixed the price at three days work and the future president pulled corn for three days, thus becoming owner of the coveted volume. In addition to this, he was fortunate enough to get hold of Aesop's Fables, Pilgrim's Progress, and The Lives of Benjamin Franklin and Henry Clay. He made these books his own by conning them over and over, copying the more impressive portions until they were firmly fixed in his memory. Commenting upon the value of this sort of mental training, Dr. Holland wisely remarks those who have witnessed the dissipating effect of many books upon the minds of modern children do not find it hard to believe that Abraham Lincoln's poverty of books was the wealth of his life. The few he had did much to perfect the teaching which his mother had begun, and to form a character which for quaint simplicity, earnestness, truthfulness, and purity, has never been surpassed among the historic personages of the world. It may well have been that Lincoln's lack of books and the means of learning threw him upon his own resources, and led him into those modes of thought, of quaint and apt and logical reasoning, so peculiar to him. At any rate, it is certain that books can no more make a character like Lincoln than they can make a poet like Shakespeare. By books may learning sometimes befall, but wisdom never by books at all. A saying peculiarly true of a man such as Lincoln. A testimonial to the influence of this early reading upon his childish mind was given by Lincoln himself many years afterwards. While on his way to Washington to assume the duties of the Presidency, he passed through Trenton, New Jersey, and in a speech made in the Senate chamber at that place, he said, May I be pardoned if, upon this occasion, I mention that, away back in my childhood, in the earliest days of my being able to read, I got hold of a small book, such a one as few of the younger members have seen, Weems's Life of Washington. I remember all the accounts there given of the battlefields and struggles for the liberties of the country. And none fixed themselves upon my imagination so deeply as the struggle here at Trenton, the crossing of the river, the contest with the Hessians, the great hardships endured at that time, all fixed themselves in my memory more than any single revolutionary event. And you all know, for you have all been boys, how these early impressions last longer than any others. I recollect thinking, then, boy even though I was, that there must have been something more than common that these men struggled for. I am exceedingly anxious that that thing which they struggled for, that something even more than national independence, that something that held out a great promise to all the people of the world for all time to come, I am exceedingly anxious that this union, the Constitution, and the liberties of the people, shall be perpetuated in accordance with the original idea for which that struggle was made another incident in regard to the ruined volume which lincoln had borrowed from crawford is related by mr Lamon. for a long time he says there was one person in the neighborhood for whom lincoln felt a decided dislike and that was josiah crawford who had made him pull fodder for three days to pay for weems's washington on that score he was hurt and mad and declared he would have revenge But being a poor boy, a fact of which Crawford had already taken shameful advantage when he extorted three days' labor, Abe was glad to get work anywhere, and frequently hired out to his old adversary. His first business in Crawford's employ was daubing the cabin, which was built of unhewn logs with the bark on. In the loft of this house, thus finished by his own hands, he slept for many weeks at a time. He spent his evenings as he did at home writing on wooden shovels or boards with a coal or keel from the branch. This family was rich in the possession of several books, which Abe read through time and again, according to his usual custom. One of the books was The Kentucky Preceptor, from which Mrs. Crawford insists that he learned his school orations, speeches, and pieces to write. She tells us also that Abe was a sensitive lad, never coming where he was not wanted, that he always lifted his hat, and bowed when he made his appearance, and that he was tender and kind like his sister, who was at the same time her maid of all work. His pay was twenty-five cents a day, and when he missed time he would not charge for it. This latter remark of Mrs. Crawford reveals the fact that her husband was in the habit of docking Abe on his miserable wages whenever he happened to lose a few minutes from steady work. The time came, however, when Lincoln got his revenge, for all this petty brutality. Crawford was as ugly as he was surly, his nose was a monstrosity, long and crooked, with a huge misshapen stub at the end, surmounted by a host of pimples, and the whole as blue as the usual state of Mr. Crawford's spirits. Upon this member Abe levelled his attacks, in rhyme, song, and chronicle though he could not reduce the nose he gave it a fame as wide as to the wabash and the ohio it is not improbable that he learned the art of making the doggerel rhymes in which he celebrated crawford's nose from the study of crawford's own kentucky preceptor lincoln's sister sarah was warmly attached to him but was taken from his companionship at an early age it is said that her face somewhat resembled his that in repose it had the gravity which they both inherited from their mother, but it was capable of being lighted almost into beauty by one of her brother's ridiculous stories or sallies of humour. She was a modest, plain, industrious girl, and was remembered kindly by all who knew her. She was married to Aaron Rigsby, at eighteen, and died a year later. Like her brother, she occasionally worked at the houses of the neighbours. She lies buried, not with her mother, but in the yard of the old Pigeon Creek meeting-house. A story which belongs to this period was told by Lincoln himself to Mr. Seward and a few friends one evening in the Executive Mansion at Washington. The President said, "'Seward! You never heard, did you, how I earned my first dollar?' "'No,' rejoined Mr. Seward. "'Well,' continued Mr. Lincoln, "'I belonged, you know, to what they call down south the Scrubs.' We had succeeded in raising, chiefly by my labour, sufficient produce, as I thought, to justify me in taking it down the river to sell. After much persuasion, I got the consent of mother to go, and constructed a little flatboat large enough to take a barrel or two of things that we had gathered, with myself and the bundle down to the southern market. A steamer was coming down the river. We have, you know, no wharves on the western streams and the custom was, if passengers were at any of the landings, for them to go out in a boat, the steamer stopping and taking them on board. I was contemplating my new flatboat and wondering whether I could make it stronger or improve it in any way, when two men came down to the shore in carriages with trunks. Looking at the different boats, they singled out mine, and asked, Who owns this? I answered somewhat modestly, I do. "'Will you take us and our trunks to the steamer?' asked one of them. "'Certainly,' said I. I was glad to have the chance of earning something. I supposed that each of them would give me two or three bits. The trunks were put on my flatboat, the passengers seated themselves on the trunks, and I sculled them out to the steamer. They got on board, and I lifted up their heavy trunks and put them on the deck. The steamer was about to put on steam again, when I called out to them that they had forgotten to pay me. Each man took from his pocket a silver half-dollar, and threw it into the bottom of my boat. I could scarcely believe my eyes. Gentlemen, you may think it a little thing, and in these days it seems to me a trifle, but it was a great event in my life. I could scarcely credit that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day, that by honest work I had earned a dollar. The world seemed wider and fairer to me. I was a more hopeful and confident being from that time. Notwithstanding the limitations of every kind which hemmed in the life of young Lincoln, he had an instinctive feeling, born perhaps of his eager ambition, that he should one day attain an exalted position. The first betrayal of this premonition is thus related by Mr. Arnold. Lincoln attended court at Boonville, to witness a murder-trial at which one of the Breckinridges from Kentucky made a very eloquent speech for the defense. The boy was carried away with admiration, and was so enthusiastic that, although a perfect stranger, he could not resist expressing his admiration to Breckinridge. He wanted to be a lawyer. He went home, dreamed of courts, and got up mock trials, at which he would defend imaginary prisoners. Several of his companions at this period of his life, as well as those who knew him after he went to Illinois, declare that he was often heard to say, not in joke, but seriously, as if he were deeply impressed rather than elated with the idea, I shall some day be President of the United States. It is stated by many of Lincoln's old friends that he often said, while still an obscure man, Some day I shall be President. He undoubtedly had for years some presentiment of this. At seventeen, Lincoln wrote a clear, neat, legible hand, was quick at figures, and able to solve easily any arithmetical problem, not going beyond the rule of three. Mr. Arnold, noting these facts, says, I have in my possession a few pages from his manuscript Book of Examples in Arithmetic. One of these is dated March 1st, 1826, and had a discount, and then follows, in his careful handwriting, a definition of discount, rules for its computation, proofs and various examples, worked out in figures, etc., then interest on money is treated in the same way all in his own handwriting. I doubt whether it would be easy to find among scholars of our common or high schools, or any school of boys of the age of seventeen, a better written specimen of this sort of work, or a better knowledge of figures than is indicated by this book of Lincolns, written at the age of seventeen. In March 1828, lincoln went to work for old mr gentry the founder of gentryville early the next month the old gentleman furnished his son allan with a boat and a cargo of bacon and other produce which he was to go to new orleans unless the stock should be sooner disposed of abe having been found faithful and efficient was employed to accompany the young man he was paid eight dollars per month and ate and slept on board the entire business of the trip was placed in abraham's hands The fact tells its own story touching the young man's reputation for capacity and integrity he had never made the trip knew nothing of the journey was unaccustomed to business transactions had never been much upon the river but his tact and ability and honesty were so far trusted that the trader was willing to risk the cargo in his care the delight with which the youth swung loose from the shore upon his clumsy craft with the prospect of a ride of eighteen hundred miles before him and a vision of the great world of which he had read and thought so much, may be imagined. At this time he had become a very tall and powerful young man. He had reached the height of six feet and four inches, a length of trunk and limb remarkable even among the tall race of pioneers to which he belonged. Just before the river expedition, Lincoln had walked with a young girl down to the river to show her his flatboat. She relates a circumstance of the evening which is full of significance. We were sitting on the banks of the Ohio, or rather on the boat he had made. I said to Abe that the sun was going down. He said to me, That's not so. It don't really go down. It seems so. The earth turns from west to east, and the revolution of the earth carries us under. We do the sinking, as you call it the sun as to us is comparatively still the sun's sinking is only an appearance i replied abe what a fool you are i know now that i was the fool not lincoln i am now thoroughly satisfied that he knew the general laws of astronomy and the movements of the heavenly bodies he was better read then than the world knows or is likely to know exactly no man could talk to me as he did that night unless he had known something of geography as well as astronomy. He often commented or talked to me about what he had read, seemed to read it out of the book as he went along. He was the learned boy among us unlearned folks. He took great pains to explain. Could do it so simply. He was diffident, too. But another change was about to come into the life of Abraham Lincoln. In 1830 his father set forth once more on the trail of the emigrant. He had become dissatisfied with his location in southern Indiana, and hearing favorable reports of the prairie lands of Illinois hoped for better fortunes there. He parted with his farm and prepared for the journey to Macon County, Illinois. Abraham visited the neighbors and bade them good-bye, but on the morning selected for their departure, when it came time to start, he was missing. He was found weeping at his mother's grave whither he had gone as soon as it was light. The thought of leaving her behind filled him with unspeakable anguish. The household goods were loaded, the oxen yoked, the family got into the covered wagon, and Lincoln took his place by the oxen to drive. One of the neighbors has said of this incident, "'Well do I remember the day the Lincolns left for Illinois. Little did I think that I was looking at a boy who would one day be President of the United States.' An interesting personal sketch of Thomas Lincoln is given by Mr. George B. Bulch, who was for many years a resident of Lerna, Coles County, Illinois. Among other things, he says, Thomas Lincoln, father of the great president, was called Uncle Tommy by his friends, and Old Tom Lincoln by other people. His property consisted of an old horse, a pair of oxen, and a few sheep, seven or eight head. My father bought two of the sheep, they being the first we owned after settling in Illinois. Thomas Lincoln was a large, bulky man, six feet tall, and weighing about two hundred pounds. He was large-boned, coarse-featured, had a large, blunt nose, florid complexion, light sandy hair, and whiskers. He was slow in speech and slow in gait. His whole appearance denoted a man of small intellect and less ambition. It is generally supposed that he was a farmer and such he was, if one who tilled so little land by such primitive modes could be so called. He never planted more than a few acres, and instead of gathering and hauling his crop in a wagon he usually carried it in baskets or large trays. He was uneducated, illiterate, content with living from hand to mouth. His death occurred on the fifteenth day of January, 1851. He was buried in a neighboring country graveyard about a mile north of Janesville, Coles County, There was nothing to mark the place of his burial until February 1861, when Abraham Lincoln paid a last visit to his grave just before he left Springfield for Washington. On a piece of oak board he cut the letters T.L. and placed it at the head of the grave. It was carried away by some relic hunter, and the place remained as before, with nothing to mark it, until the spring of 1876. THEN THE WRITER, FEARING THAT THE GRAVE OF LINCOLN'S FATHER WOULD BECOME ENTIRELY UNKNOWN, SUCCEEDED IN AWAKENING PUBLIC OPINION ON THE SUBJECT. SOON AFTERWARD A MARBLE SHAFT, TWELVE FEET HIGH, WAS ERECTED, BEARING ON ITS WESTERN FACE THIS INSCRIPTION. THOMAS LINCOLN, FATHER OF THE MARTYRED PRESIDENT, BORN JANUARY 6, 1778, DIED JANUARY 15, 1851. LINCOLN And now, concluded Mr. Balch, I have given all that can be known of Thomas Lincoln. I have written impartially and with a strict regard to facts which can be substantiated by many of the old settlers in this county. Thomas Lincoln was a harmless and honest man. Beyond this, one will search in vain for any ancestral clue to the greatness of Abraham Lincoln. End of chapter 1b. Recording by Bill Borst.